marriages can be a dry subject. So here's your oasis in the desert. It's the podcast that will get you talking and thinking, or more likely drinking. The Lennon to his McCartney, the Burt to his Ernie. It's the one and only Mortgage Stew and his sidekick Martin at the LM Experience. Hi there, welcome to the LM Experience. It's now episode 41. And more importantly, it's season two. Season two. I, I Are prefer we allowed to call it series. Can't we go see? The only chance of us flogging is to Netflix long term is if we go series. So we're going to go series two. How about that? Yeah, okay. Okay, okay great. Okay. Well, listen, uh, welcome back yes, to the indeed. studio. Where did the time go? Who knows? I don't know. We just kind of got it's just gone. sleeping bags and Absolutely. we're back again. Well, it, we've got a really interesting guest today, um, Stu. We're going to fly into this. It's, it's just a one guest. We're going to go for 45 minutes and see what see what financial gold we can get. Mm-hmm. We've, got, um, we've got Mr. Andrew Sentence. Welcome, Andrew. Good morning. Uh, now, very rare for one of our guests. Andrew's actually got a Wikipedia page, so I, I went. Th- and that, that's now the benchmark for all our future guests, by the way. Um, so we did do more research than we just have, the Wikipedia. Yes, yeah. absolutely. So um, can't rely on everything that's on there. No, well, you can tell me what's wrong, okay, and sue me after. Um, so, Andrew, you, you, you study economics at Cambridge. You've got a master of science and a doctor of um, philosophy. Uh, senior economist positions at CBI and British Airways. Yep. You've been an advisor to the government, and in 2006, you were appointed to be a member of the MPC, uh, and you served on that from 2006 uh, until 2011, and then you left there to become the senior economist at, uh, at PwC, and, and you retired earlier this year for what I can only assume is a, is a much-needed rest. Well, I, I haven't retired from life oh, okay. or from <laughs> economics. I've just retired from you know, regular, jobs. Pa- regular paid employment. Yes, okay, so you're from, still on the circuit. From being a slave to the corporate the, the corporate machine, so to speak. That, well, that's fair enough. And I've just, I've just got to give a shout-out to, to Rob Gill because we have been pestering you for around about a year to try and <laughs> get you well, on here. And you're, so, you're getting rewarded for your persistence. <laughs> so we, you. we've broken Andrew's sentence, which is great. And thanks, Rob, for uh, for putting us in contact with such a, such a, a good guest. And I suppose maybe the first question before we get on to some really interesting stuff, um, Andrew, is what, what made you want to be an economist? Well, I started studying economics in 1974, and if you can take your mind back to that time, um, it was probably the most turbulent time we've had in the UK economy, apart from what what we're going through now. (laughs) Yes. Uh, 1974, um, inflation hit nearly 30%. Uh, Unemployment started rocketing up. Economists told, uh, were saying in the 60s, uh, inflation and unemployment should move in opposite directions. They started moving up together. We had a three-day week. We had two elections in the year. Uh, all sorts of turmoil. Did we get the IMF bailout around about that, then? That was a couple of years later. Oh, okay. Um, but, but I started studying economics at school, and I was just fascinated to under, get some better understanding of what was driving these turbulent events in the 70s. And mm-hmm. as you say, they continued through the 70s. So mm-hmm. we had the IMF bailout in 1976. We ended up with the winter of discontent in 79. 1980s were a pretty turbulent time. Um, and that was the period while I was studying economics. And, and I suppose my driving motivation was to get some sort of more analytically based insight into what was going on in the world. And economics and politics are quite closely related. So I found myself getting quite interested in the political debates um, and particularly the policy-related aspects of economics. So I, I managed to be almost a sort of full-time student from 19, 
76 um, through to about 1986. Well done. Um, <laughs> um, accumulating degrees. You know, I can, can compete with the three degrees. Um, I've, I've got three degrees. Um, and then started my career at the CBI. And since then, I've had a number of roles in business and policy making. Uh, where I felt I've been trying to apply the insights I gained through my studies of economics in the late 70s and early 80s. Is economics forward thinking or is, is it kind of rear view mirror? Well, I think it's both. Um, you can only understand, uh, I think, the future by sort of interpreting it in the context of things that have gone before. Um, you know, you can't, there's no. Uh, sort of grand theory of everything yeah. in economics. I think people who criticise economists don't really appreciate that we've got, you know, you know, how many billions of people in the global economy, six billion people. We've got myriads of firms. Even in the UK, uh, we've got over 60 million people. We've got masses of uh, firms, probably more than a million firms. And you're trying to, as an economist, you're trying to simplify this into some sort of framework mm -hmm. to guide uh, policymakers or to guide business. Um, it's an incredibly complex thing, the economy. Um, so one way we can try and interpret it is in terms of looking at what happened in the past. But you have to then adjust because everything is, every episode is different. So we didn't go through the same sort of recession in 2008 2009 as we went through in the 70s so it evolves, or in the early 80s it? Yeah. Uh, so you have to have to make adjustments but is there not a risk as well that you're sometimes looking at data and by the time it's got on your desk that data is then out of date it's probably less so now um i mean we have lots of business survey data that is very up to date um things like retail sales manufacturing output coming out within four to six weeks um yeah, some of, the, some of the data that we look at is a bit out of date, um, but there is enough out there, yeah. um, and this is how the MPC works and how I think economists in the city work. They're looking at the most sort of up-to-date uh, guide mm -hmm. that we can get to what's happening in the economy at the moment. Well, okay, let's get on to the Bank of England, if you can. Um, I went to the Bank of England once. Uh, there's actually a bank in the Bank of England, isn't there? Downstairs. It's actually normal, it's there like is, a normal yeah. resale bank, yep. isn't there? I had a yep. client over there. Have you been there, Stu? I went in once when I was at college, actually. Right. I was on a business and finance uh, course, and we had a day trip up there. Yeah. It was it's fascinating. a fascinating and, uh, historical building. And the staff in the Bank of England can have an account at the Bank they of can. England. What a check. But low, <laughs> you know, woe betide them. If they go overdrawn, I think that's a sort of sackable <laughs> offence. It's the Carney Online too for you, Stuart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so let's just talk about the MPC because I'm fascinated about the decisions that are made in, in the world by um, a small number of people at the top of the chain and, and it filters down to what we see on a day-by-day -day basis. So were you an external member of the MPC? Does that mean anything in particular? Well, there are two types of members of the MPC. It's a, it's a group of nine people. Five of them are full-time bank staffers, the governor, deputy governors, chief economist, etc. And then there are four people who are appointed from outside who have some experience either in the academic world or in the business world or in the financial world that's relevant to the MPC. And generally they're quite 
well-trained economist. So the fact that I got these three degrees um, between the, <laughs> so the mid seventies and the mid eighties <laughs> was quite helpful to me. Yes. Yeah. So is, is there is there a sort of like a selection process for those four spaces? Well, or? it's it, it's changed over the years. So originally, the selection process started with um, the chancellor consulting his officials in the treasury. Mm-hmm. Um, and possibly some senior people in the bank about having a sort of suitable candidate and then approaching that suitable candidate. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was approached, I think, on a Tuesday lunchtime um, in July 2006, and I was expected to make a decision within about 24 hours about whether I wanted to join the MPC. Um, now, that was when Gordon Brown was Chancellor, mm-hmm. and I would call that the old system. I was the last person, actually, to be appointed under that system. Did you have to resign your position at what would have been CBI or British, uh, British Airways? Airways. You, yeah. you can't do both. No, you can't have commercial Conflict and financial interest, yeah. responsibilities when you're on the MPC. Right. So, you know, I had to forge all my links with British Airways. There was no, there was so no going back. Was it a tough decision? Um, sort of yes and no. I think my wife is the person who's most annoyed about it because we had some very good travel perks through being a part of the senior management of British Airways. Um, but in terms of my career, not really. I, th- I think to be part of the top level of policymaking in this country, mm. in the profession that you've been trained in, um, you know, it's it's a it's a very great honour and, and a great distinction. But the the the, the appointment system has now changed. Um, so I joined not long before the MPC was ten years old, and the parliamentary committee, the Treasury Select Committee, did a review, and they said that they thought the appointment system should be changed. So it now has to be done by people applying. Okay. Um, so if you want to be on the MPC, you can apply, and you get more than twenty-four and, hours to decide. Uh, and, and the process is 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 more long, is longer and more structured. Yes. Mm-hmm. <coughs> so tell us about the MPC meetings. What what actually goes on? I mean, I would imagine over the past sort of ten years, it's all been pretty short, hasn't it? Well, the first, the, first, and... the first thing to point out, I think, is that it's a process, not just a meeting. Mm-hmm. So um, for the interest rate decision, which now takes place every six weeks, but it used to take place monthly, um, the process starts with uh, something called the pre-MPC, which is about a week before the MPC decision, mm-hmm. where lots of data and information is presented to the members of the committee. And then... That raises a lot of questions, and it's surprising, you know, um, even on a monthly or six-weekly basis, how many questions can be raised about what's what's going on. Um, and then the actual MPC decision takes place over a couple of days in the week after that. But even aside from that, the MPC is responsible for the bank's inflation report. More than um, right, yeah. It's responsible mm-hmm. for um, communicating, members of the committee communicating through press interviews, through uh, speeches, etc. So, actually, some people have said to me about my time on the MPC. Well, you rock up once once a month <laughs> and, and sort of sit around for half an hour <coughs> deciding what to do about interest rates. It's, it's not like that, that at no. all. It's mm. a much longer process. Um, you mentioned sort of Gordon Brown there, and, and, and Gordon Brown bought in the, the independence of the Bank of England, didn't they, when Labour got in, I think, in 97 or 98. Mm-hmm. What are your views on that? Do you, I mean, is it an independent body? Because there's lots of accusations nowadays. Well, everyone gets accused of something nowadays in the media, but does it, does it still maintain that independence? Well, I think the independence of the Bank of England sort of emerged over the 1990s. I think Gordon Brown sort of 
cemented it in place with the MPC. But it was already emerging in the mid-1990s under John Major. You might remember what was called the Ken and Eddie show. Ken, <laughs> Ken Clark and Eddie... <laughs> Um, uh, George, George, yeah. who was who was the governor of the Bank of England at the time, they started having a much more transparent process about discussing interest rates. They would discuss them once a month, and there'd be minutes of their meetings. And the Bank of England, from 1992 onwards, uh, was already producing the inflation report. Um, and then that was solidified in 1997 with uh, Gordon Brown's decision, which was probably heavily influenced by um, that's a Strictly Come Dancing um, <laughs> celebrity uh, Ed it. Balls yes. um, to, to make the, to give the MPC proper independent responsibility for interest rates. Um, and then the MPC's role has emerged from there. But I think in more recent times, I think there have been various things that have happened that have brought question marks into mm. how independent the bank is or should be perceived to be. Um, is that just bad PR? Or was there some sisters uh, it, behind that? I, I, th- I think it, I think it's it's emerged from a whole host of events. I mean, the fact that we've found it very difficult to raise interest rates. I always felt on the MPC that one of the reasons you had an independent central bank is raising interest rates is very dif- difficult for politicians. So you have this independent group on the side who are prepared to take the tough decisions. So it's partly the fact that I think the MPC hasn't taken really any tough decisions since the financial crisis. I think there's been around the appointment process for the um, for the governor uh, appointing Mark Carney, which was something that seemed to be a sort of rather personal decision from George Osborne appointing someone from overseas, which wasn't a natural sort of choice. And then the way in which his appointment has been extended over time um, I think a series of things have probably brought into question the independence of the, of the Bank of England. Now, that may be more apparent than real, but uh, for central banks, credibility is crucial. Mm-hmm. Um, credibility is crucial to independence. So even the perception that the bank is not totally independent is is a bit of a problem. I, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Because I think with the, the whole, when he got given the moniker of unreliable boyfriend at one point, um, with regards to some of the kind of the press coverage that he got in certain sort of decision processes, I think people do not have a, a genuine day-to-day interest in economics or even in politics. Even they read the headlines, and as a result, they they create their own perception. Yeah, and their own reality of the of the wider sort of mm. the committee as well, don't they? On that basis, absolutely. Uh, uh, no smoke without fire, as they say, Andrew. Um, you mentioned the credit crunch there. Briefly. Yep. Okay, I want to spend a bit of time on that because yep. take you back. So now we're getting into that, that part of the, uh, the the calendar when we're getting loads of anniversary articles yep. about yep. twelve years ago today. This happened ten years. So, you know, August two thousand seven, sun was shining, mm-hmm. business was booming, Northern Rock was collapsing. Mm-hmm. So, it almost seemed to the majority of people that that just came out of nowhere. Did you, when you were in your position within on the MPC, did you see any of this coming? At what stage do you think this is, this is more than just uh, a problem with the funding line? There were two things that were going on at the time in 2007 <clears throat> or 2006-07. The first was the emergence of the what was turned out, Northern Rock, you could say, was the, the early foothills <laughs> of the financial <laughs> crisis because when we got into Lehman's and everything yes. else that happened, it all got a lot more serious. But also we had a world economy that was growing very strongly 
and inflationary pressures that were picking up. And so in terms of the formal mandate of the Monetary Policy Committee, which is to keep inflation on target, they had to, you know, we had to be careful about overreacting mm. to what might just be a problem with a, a single bank. And I think when the, when the first thing started to happen in the financial crisis, it wasn't really clear whether this was just specific problems attached to certain banks who've made the wrong commercial decisions or whether it was a much more generic problem. Uh, now, I think one thing morphed into another uh, because, because certain banks got into trouble. That then knocked in on through the financial system. It became systemic, didn't it? It was a, yeah, a domino yeah. effect. But I think one of the things that people missed at the time, and I think hasn't been appreciated properly since, the Bank of England spent a long time looking at the UK housing market in the mid-2000s, before the financial crisis, and worrying whether house prices were going up too fast, mm-hmm. whether they should adjust interest rates more quickly, push them up to, 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 to burst the housing bubble. What attracted very little attention was the housing market in the US. Mm-hmm. And yet that was what ultimately caused the global financial crisis. Um, and it was the transmission of that problem through the financial system into banks like Northern Rock, who then found it difficult to borrow. Mm-hmm. And then even bigger banks like RBS, Lloyds, um, Halifax, etc. Found, it, found yeah. it found it harder to borrow. Yeah. Um, and then that's what then morphed by 2008, uh, particularly the autumn of 2008, into the global financial crisis. Because I think as well, we, I, I can remember seeing it with regards to um, the lending processes because uh, 2006 I left working for a bank <coughs> and at that point, the bank I was working within at that point had already moved away from income multipliers into an affordability-based system mm-hmm. as they calculated it because the multipliers system wouldn't keep up with house property price growth, for mm-hmm. example. Um, that was really the first stage of things that I noticed was the, the affordability thing from the UK banks. But then it was on more on the adverse side of things, where a lot of the um, specialist lenders that there were at the time, which were funded by US banks at the time, who had, some of them had links to the no money down type deals that were going on in the US yeah. at that point. Yeah, ILTV, yeah. no uh, checks, no subprime. Yes. Yeah, very yeah. much so. That, that suddenly just seemed to escalate quite quickly, didn't mm. it? I think from probably from the 2005, oh, yeah. 2006 onwards. Because it's a huge be- part of the market. Before that, the pricing on deals for somebody who had, let's say, heavy adverse, so CCJs or defaults, for example, at that point, that the separation on price range w- was massive. So they could get the get the deal they wanted, but they were paying a good 3 to 4% perhaps yeah. higher than what the, the average person would. I think the, the other thing that was probably um, not helpful was the way the Bank of England had set itself up you know, post um, when the MPC was established, mm-hmm. um, the financial side of the Bank of England, the finan- what's called financial stability, was quite segmented from the Monetary Policy Committee. Um, and the only people who could sort of bridge the two were the very senior people like the governor mm-hmm. and perhaps a couple of the deputy governors. Um, and so there probably wasn't enough read across from what was going on in the financial system mm-hmm. into monetary policy. Now, that changed during the crisis because we suddenly realised, <laughs> you, <had> well, to, <laughs> yeah. you know, this is having a major impact on us. But if we look back to the previous recessions and problems that the UK had had to deal with mm-hmm. on the macroeconomic front, they were more to do with inflation and they weren't really to do with the financial system. Mm. And we suddenly found ourselves dealing with something which the, where the financial system was at the heart of it. Because mm, I think as well, a lot of it was down to lender self-control 
issues as well. I mean, I can remember doing reviews for clients in 2008 who had been with um, basically one of the linked to one of the lenders who eventually did have issues, where they were doing um, the equivalent of, uh, really, in some respects, it was more a case of um, uh, kind of the, the no confirmation income side side of things. But they weren't doing it for sole traders, which were what those particular types of mortgages were designed for. They were using it for PAYE individuals at that point. Mm. And that was where I think you know, the criteria that individual lenders were taking was sometimes going in a really weird direction. I think one of the, one of the main components, which numbers doesn't really talk about, was back then we had a very much light-touch approach to regulation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and these guys were just creating money yeah. out of nowhere, creating criteria out of nowhere, and, and no one really knew what was happening behind the scenes. Well, what, what we'd had from starting from the early 1990s onwards had been a process of globalisation across the world economy, which had broken down barriers to doing business across all sorts of sectors. And in many ways, that was very beneficial. You know, consumers could buy stuff, you know, very cheaply, electronic goods, clothing and things from mm-hmm. China. That was all part of the global economy. But within the financial sector, that had also broken down some of the barriers which were perhaps keeping us protected (laughs) from, you know, from big problems. And so it was then easier for problems, as I say, in the US housing market to transmit themselves into the whole global financial system. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting what the Chinese say about the global financial crisis. They don't call it the global financial crisis. They call it the North Atlantic financial (laughs) crisis because they see it as actually something that was infecting the US and Europe, but not necessarily the Asian powerhouse. Yeah. That's interesting. You should write a book on this one day, Andrew, in, in, in your semi retirement. Many, many people have, yes. <laughs> um, so obviously the credit crunch rolled on, it just got worse and worse. We ended up with Bear Stearns, and as you said, then you mentioned about layman's. I mean, what were the NPC meetings like back then? It can't have been all uh, brandies and cigars, I wouldn't have Well, thought. I mean, first of all, the NPC meeting is very civilised, mm. um, and I think, you know, Mervyn King deserves a lot of credit for that. Um, he was a very good chair of the NPC, uh, I think a very good governor of the Bank of England. He's been perhaps criticised that he was quite slow to pick up on the severity of the problems around Northern Rock and in the financial system. But I think when he and the senior people in the bank did pick up on it, we actually moved quite dramatically. Um, Just to give an example, um, in November uh, 2008, we made a one and a half percentage point cut Mm. in interest rates. I think that was the first one and a half percentage point cut in, in interest rates that have been made since the 1840s. Crikey. And yeah. I remember speaking to my mother, who was reliant on interest income after the MPC meeting, and she said, I don't think I should be talking to you <laughs> because you've just undermined my income <laughs> very my severely. Yeah. So there were quite, quite, something had to give, quite it? dramatic moves were taken, but they were taken in a sort of very considered way. Mm. Um, Looking back now... I mean, you said you said King was a safe pair of hands. Would you say Alistair Darning and Gordon Brown were a safe pair of hands at the same time? Well, I think the, I think what happened during the financial crisis, um, even though the bank was formally independent, the bank and the government were working together on the things where they did need to work together, um, which I think was a good thing. Uh, and actually, I think Gordon Brown deserves some credit for trying to bring governments together, as he did in London at the beginning of 2009, to discuss the issues. Um, And I think the actions that governments and central banks generally took stopped the worst 
possible scenarios from the crisis. It was still pretty bad. Absolutely, yeah. But that the actions that were taken stopped the worst possible uh, outcomes. And the world economy started recovering um, in the summer of 2009. The UK economy started recovering in the summer of 2009. People didn't believe it when it started happening, but actually the recovery now has been going on for over 10 years. Have you got a take on that, Stu? Because I look at that and I think we were, were, you know, we were looking over the precipice. You had major UK lenders running out of money. Um, everything was interlinked. No one knew how or where or mm. why. Um, and here we are today in a, in a very active housing market, strong stock market, uh, low inflation. You know, everyone seems to be driving very nice cars, apart from me. But it, what's yeah. your take on it? I think the difficulty is, isn't it? It's, it? I think within the industry that we're in, we kind of see it slightly differently yeah. to outwardly how other people might who work in different areas. Um, 2008 for me was seismic. Yeah. Um, two kids under three suddenly get a month's notice of that <laughs> the company is kind of restructuring and you weren't part of it. Fifty percent of the staff were gone. First of all, and I survived the first coal, which was quite good. Second coal didn't survive that one. Um, but at that point, you kind of think, right, okay, how are things going to going to change, and how they're going to change for the better? Um, having said that, six months later, I have my own company up and running. So it's a case of yeah. different structures at that point. And I think the thing is with it that. Um, I certainly felt was that there was a lag a year after all of that happened where um, I, th- I felt at the time that the press coverage wasn't being fair and honest about the items that have been done to try and alleviate some of the problems. Um, and certainly as the mortgage market was recovering, going from minimum deposit of 25%, which was how the market went straight away, I think from that point of view that it, there was a very sort of short, very sort of long-term lag on the public being aware of how many things have been done to help them. And I think that was where social media started in. So that was the first thing I got involved with because of that. It would give people an idea to have a communication yeah. level. But one of the things I feel you know, really quite strongly about, and I've been very public on this for uh, really since uh, not long after the financial crisis, is that... The, while we took some quite dramatic steps, as you were saying, hmm. to try and help people out, particularly cutting interest rates, um, there wasn't enough thought given to how you then get out of that situation. Mm-hmm. Because we're now in a situation which I think is is really um, looks fundamentally unsound, mm-hmm. that interest rates, which are normally above the rate of inflation, <laughs> have been significantly below the rate of inflation for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a situation where borrowers, if they can access funds, can actually access them quite cheaply. Mm. But savers are not getting remunerated for their uh, their savings, and that's affecting pension funds. It's mm. affecting the whole attitude to to saving and borrowing in this country. Now, you can tolerate that for a few years, mm. but it's now been going on for a decade. And I, I think one of the big failings coming out of the financial crisis was not to have an exit strategy. Uh, we've ended up with a Brexit strategy instead, which I don't think is what, what I would like to see. <laughs> Not having a proper monetary policy exit strategy. Yeah, I think the difficulty is as well, when we see it with, with the work that we do with clients as well, is that because of the how long interest rates have been low, it impacts on people's choices that they then make as a result of thinking it's the new normal. Yeah, uh, oh, yeah. very certainly, new to, to now, what goes on now. The, amount, the, the biggest issue now that I tend to see, and I'm sure you do as well with your advisors, Martin, is car finance agreements, leasing agreements now, mm-hmm. where people don't see it as the level of borrowing that it is. 
And when you mm-hmm. point it out to them, when you review their credit file and say, actually, they say, oh, no, it's only £124 a month. It's like, yeah, but <laughs> mm-hmm. the value of that vehicle on your credit file is over 20000 let's say. Yes, um, yes. that's a bubble yeah. waiting to go wrong, I think. It, that, that's one careful. area which, at the moment, where I think people are then, obviously, or some of them on a four-year lease agreement, yeah. for example. Yeah. The change in circumstances could, in some cases, kind of cripple some clients Absolutely. that we talk to. Andrew, you mentioned the base rates there and about maybe maybe, maybe we, we are behind the curve now with that. And it brings me nicely on to some questions that we've got in from the Daily Telegraph. I've uh, right. got a good, very good friend over there, Sam Barker, mm-hmm. uh, who we've known for some time. And he's, he's very kindly sent some uh, questions in to us. Uh, we're not sponsored by the Telegraph, not yet, I hasten to add. Uh, <laughs> but our bank account is open for donations. Um, uh, so if I just ask you these questions, uh, Andrew, and please just be as controversial as you want so we okay. can get, all uh, get on the front page of the Telegraph. Right, um, okay. So this is from the Daily Telegraph, this is from Sam. Um, have the years of low bank rate been worth it, considering the battering this has given British savers? Well, I think they were worth it at the beginning um, in trying to give the economy a lift um, out of the financial crisis. But I think that they are now becoming potentially a drag on the economy Economists have been agonising about slow productivity growth, slow GDP growth. Um, and one of the contributors to that could well be the fact that the terms of finance are so uh, sort of easy uh, that they're blunting the normal mechanisms by which people look for raising productivity, rate, making their operations more efficient. So I, I think initially it was a good thing. Uh, as a person who was on the MPC cutting interest rates <laughs> back in 2008-9, I would say that, wouldn't I? <laughs> but there wasn't a proper exit strategy. When, when should and, they have been going up, do you think? Well, I think um, I started arguing for it 2010-2011. Then right. we had the euro crisis, yeah. and, and I think that was difficult. But there were some good opportunities 2013, 2014, 2015, before the Brexit vote. The UK economy grew by over 3% in 2014. Uh, unemployment was coming down quite sharply. That would have normally been the signal, just to push interest rates up to say something like two to three percent, mm-hmm. and do it in a gradual way. So don't frighten, the, don't frighten the horses, don't frighten the the mortgage holders, but just to get us back into a, a more even keel between borrowers and savers. Well, that, that leads on to very nicely Sam's second question: that is there a big consideration of the MPC that if they increase bank rates, many homeowners may fall into arrears? Um, I, I suppose I feel I'm, I'm a bit surprised the MPC has been so timid in terms of the arguments that have been advanced. So if you look at um, the debates on the MPC over the last sort of seven or eight years, there's been one or two people who've argued for higher interest rates. But it seems there's a sort of groupthink mm-hmm. going on in the MPC. Now, that may be one factor in it about worrying about the, the sort of impact on the, on the personal sector balance sheet, people getting into arrears. But, you know, in, we've had past times when interest rates have gone up from, you know, 7 or 8% up to 15%. That happened mm-hmm. in the late 1980s. Um, and the view then that was taken, well, people have made a decision to buy a house, so they have to live with the consequences if interest rates Caveat go up. Until, absolutely. And I think there's just an excess timidity about raising interest rates by a quarter of a percent or half a percent. They just seem to be um, drive to protect it, the consumer at all costs. It, it seems to be an unbalanced policy, hmm. which is favouring borrowers, particularly existing borrowers, um, uh, at the expense of the natural functioning of the economy. 
Well, again, nicely done. That leads us on to uh, Sam's third question. At what point or what do you think the time frame will be before we see the bank rate rise to a level where savers get above inflation returns rather than just beating inflation? Is, what, what, when's the crossover when, you know, uh, the tug of war, when are the savers going to win or will they ever again? Well, I think the longer this goes on, the more difficult it becomes. That's the, that's the problem. Um, back in 2008, 2009, if you looked at the forward curve for interest rates, they were for interest rates going up to 2 to 3% within the space of a year or two. Um, now, that didn't happen. Um, and now the forward curve, if, insofar as you believe what it says, is incredibly flat. And the market expectations are for interest rates if they're going to rise at all, to rise very slowly and very gradually. Um, now, the problem is that becomes self-fulfilling. Mm-hmm. And the longer this period of very low interest rates goes on, just as happened in Japan, yeah, 30 the, years harder it, the harder it then becomes for the policymakers to act. Mm-hmm. So I think we really missed a, a very big window of opportunity in the mid-2010s, say from 2013 to 2015, to get rates up to somewhere around about 2 to 3% as they have done in the US, even though they're edging them down a bit now, um, in order to get the balance uh, right on monetary well, they, they policy. They gave themselves some room to then do that. We, we've just kind of been bouncing around between 0 and 0.75 for about five years, haven't we? Well, it does seem that if there's ever any argument for keeping interest rates low, that argument holds sway on the mm. MPZ, whether it's to do with Brexit, whether it's to do with you know worrying about indebted households. Um, and there aren't enough. I was, I was, uh, I was classified as a hawk when I was on the MPC. There aren't enough hawks yes. on the MPC yeah. who are really trying to think about things from a different perspective and, and try and take a contrary view. Well, you, you mentioned the B word. We've done well to avoid it most of the time. And it leads us again nicely on to Sam's last question: uh, What will happen to bank rates if, the, in the event of a, a No Deal Brexit? Um, or a Brexit deal along the lines of what has been put forward. So we're getting to that point now. We're five weeks away from the end of October. We are staring at no deal or potentially a new sort of withdrawal agreement. What, what would happen on both sides of that fence, do you think, to base rate? Well, I'd hope that if we get a deal, uh, that will sort of remove a lot of the uncertainty around Brexit and will create space for the Bank of England to do what it should have been doing, I believe, for several years, which is to gradually raise interest rates, not in a dramatic way. I think in a no-deal scenario, um, it's very difficult to predict, but I find it very hard to believe that the bank would sort of really jack up interest rates if the, the sort of some of the pre- predictions about no-deal turn out to be correct. Um, Do you have an opinion? Ob- ob- obviously, on the- the, you know, the, there's the worry about the value of the pound, but mm. they've been pretty complacent about the value <laughs> of the pound um, on the MPC for quite a long time. Just letting so, it do its thing, Con. I, I, th- I think... The difference in the scenarios between no deal and a deal is under a deal there is space potentially mm-hmm. if the MPC are courageous enough and the, the new governor is courageous enough to gradually raise interest rates. But in a no deal scenario, that would be very difficult. You're quite vocal on Twitter on Brexit um, and we can't avoid it. Um, <laughs> uh, it does appear to be all in, in, encompassing but do you, with your three degrees can, can you see a solution where the Leave voters get their democratic right that we, we, you know, we will leave as based on the, the question in 2016 referendum and at the same time balance that with being able to trade with our, our closest neighbours I mean, is there a solution to the conundrum? 
I think there have been many solutions available, but um, I think as we've gone down the Brexit path since the referendum, uh, I think one of the things that went wrong under Theresa May's uh, prime ministership, she closed off a lot of the options. Her Lancaster House speech at the mm. beginning of 2017, which is a long time ago now, set some red lines which ruled out something that could have been quite an easy solution, which is uh, remaining in the European economic area. It's called the Norway solution, mm -hmm. at least for a period of, say, up to five years as a transition. Um, so we've closed off a lot of the options. Um, and I think what we're now in is, is trying to desperately recover lost ground mm. after having wasted the last three years in really... Um, going down a lot of blind alleys, it yeah. seems to me. It's always felt to me that, that the one thing that went out of the window after that speech really was really the word compromise. Mm. Because since that point, the actual the discussion around how we exit has just gone completely down the rabbit hole in a certain extent in terms of that a more extreme view of exiting has been propagated to become the norm in a lot of directions and that, that's the bit which I have the biggest problem with. I've never had a problem with the result or people actually choosing to leave just mm. the case of you don't have to go out on the principle of this is now what we're saying we wanted and that's that's the difficulty for me overall with it to be honest. And pe people also are not focusing on the longer term consequences of a no deal mm. I mean a no deal um, would create some disruption in terms of trade and food supplies and perhaps medical supplies and mm. things like that. But there's a longer term price to pay for a no deal, which is that the UK, which has normally been a very trustworthy partner in making international agreements, will have been seen to break an international agreement with its closest trading partners mm. in, a, in a sort of fundamental way. And that breakdown could have well have consequences for future trade agreements that we want to do, mm. certainly with the EU and possibly with other countries like the US, China, etc. Mm. So a no deal is not just the short-term consequences of no deal. It's actually a breakdown in the reputation that the UK has for being a reliable international partner in uh, you know, broader global affairs. Mm. Andrew, you mentioned briefly then about the new governor. Um, you throwing your hat in the ring? No, I didn't apply. <laughs> could, you, could you have applied? Uh, I could have applied. Um, no, I, th I think probably, you know, I'm in my 60s now. And it's, an eight, it's meant to be an eight-year sort of term yeah. of appointment. Uh, so I've done a lot of interesting things uh, in my career. Uh, and I'm sure I'm, the, I'm quite the right person. I think they need somebody who's got a lot of managerial experience of running an important institution like the Bank of England. Now, that experience could come from the private sector. And interestingly, in the Sunday press, mm. a number of uh, names have been floated around from yeah, the, the Morrissey private sector. Morrissey was one that was quite popular. Um, <clears throat> Lena Morrissey was uh, one who was mentioned. Um, I would actually be quite keen on us looking at the private sector and not just taking someone off the central banking shelf, so yes, to speak. A well-chiselled um, well civil servant. <laughs> and uh, somebody in the private sector might bring a bit, bit of a new perspective uh, and we've had, you know, if you look back into the past, in the 60s and 70s, we've had uh, governors who've been appointed with private sector experience. So I hope that the, um, the government is looking quite widely mm. at the range of candidates and not just picking the, the obvious ones. You were, you were quite critical recently about, about the, the, the time it's taken, because this should have been sorted out last year, shouldn't it? 
Well, yes, when Mark Carney joined as governor, he was meant to serve for five years, and that was shorter than the, the official period. But once that five-year term was set, in my view, that should have been adhered to, because the reason for having a fixed term is really to stop the whole process of reappointment of the governor becoming a political issue. Mm -hmm. And it does seem to have become a political issue. And that has, I think, had a knock-on effect on the credibility of the Bank of England. Mm. And I can't think of any other major public appointments that have been held up for so long and postponed for so long as the governorship of the Bank of England. Now, if the, if the government, as you know, the current government, wants to safeguard the independence and credibility of the Bank of England, they should really stick to a timetable and appoint somebody on a sort of recognised uh, timetable rather than keeping on sort of kicking the can down the road and, and postponing the decision. Last question, last grown-up question anyway. Um, coming to the end of Mark Carney's term, what would you give him out of 10 as a, as a Governor of the Bank of England? Has he done a good job? Could he have done better? Well, I think that in my, in my view, his big failure, he hasn't really grasped the nettle of trying to get interest rates and monetary policy back up to some sort of more normal level. Not to where it was before the crisis, but up to a more normal level. That has been his big failing in my view. Uh, there are some things that he's done, you know, I think probably in terms of the re internal reorganisation of the bank, making some aspects of the bank more transparent uh, that are, are very creditable. But that was the big elephant in the room, uh, mon getting monetary policy back on an even keel. And I think that's been his big failing. Well, on that bombshell, thank you, Andrew. What a fascinating 40 minutes that was. Indeed. Thank certainly. you, Andrew. That flew by. I yeah. could do another 40 minutes now, right. but uh, unfortunately we can't afford another hour in the studio, so <laughs> we're going to get kicked out surely. Um, Andrew, we always like to end on a slightly light-hearted question, um, right. and I know that you are a huge music fan, and you've tweeted some videos recently yep, yep. from YouTube of you performing some uh, great Steely Dan songs, which yeah. you've put me on to. Well, just one, yes. <laughs> Good enough for me. Um, so what I thought we'd do, we play this sometimes in the pub. What are your top five albums of all time? And you're not allowed compilations and you're not allowed best-offs. So it's yeah. got to be original albums. So I've had a go, Stu's had a go. What are your top five albums of all time, Andrew? Well, I'm a big fan of sort of classic rock in various ways, Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin and all that sort of stuff. But actually, uh, none, of, none of my top five albums, when I really think about it, actually uh, come from that, that stable. First of all, you have to choose a Beatles album. <laughs> And my favourite is Abbey Road. Right, interesting. Um, the musicianship on Abbey Road um, is, is, is particularly good. And um, I know people like Sgt Pepper, some people like uh, Revolver. That's my favourite Beatles album. I'm a big Paul Simon fan. There goes Rhyming Simon. <laughs> his first solo album after... No, his second solo album, sorry, after, after he left Split with Garfunkel. Um, Jackson Brown. Uh, I'm very much into the West Coast... Uh, U.S. music like Crosby, Stills and Nash, Jackson Brown's "Late for Late for the Sky" um, is one of my favourite albums from him. Um, Steely Dan has to feature of course, yes. a number Everyone's of good favorite. albums. I would choose <laughs> "Can't Buy a Thrill," which has um, "Do It Again" and "Reading in the Years" on on it. And finally, Stevie Wonder. Oh, Stevie yeah. Wonder had this really great period of albums. Um, uh, talking book. Inner Visions, Fulfilling This First Finale. And the last in that series was Songs in the Key of Life. Um, and that would be my Stevie Wonder album that I would choose. Excellent. So no classic, even though I'm a big fan of Pink Floyd, Led Zeppelin, yeah. when I get down to it, 
It's you more had about Desert Island Discs. It's more about five. the Beatles, West Coast, and Stevie Wonder. Very good. Brilliant. Excellent choice. Well done. Thanks, Andrew. Richie, what you got? Yeah, I've gone for, gone for the following. And this is all kind of, it, it zips back and forth across the decades, really, um, to be honest with me. A lot of it mainly from the 70s onwards. I'm a 70s kid. Um, eight, mid-80s, Huey Lewis and the News, uh, album called Four. Yeah. that I listened to that lots during my teenage years and actually loved their stuff. Um, secondly, Slade, who I think are one of the most... I'm un- feeling the noise. Yeah. <laughs> this one, um, Slade in Flame, predominantly for one particular track, which is How Does It Feel, which I think is one of the best songs ever written by oh, a UK. I'll you know, give that a listen. What's it, how, right, Slade, yeah. Yeah, it's it? actually to do with the, the actual film they released at the same time. It's right. not quite so good. Um, then Bowie, uh, Hunky Dory. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, for a Rick big, Waitman on keyboards. Big, long list of tracks on that, which you can just play forever. Uh, next up, Chic. Say Chic. Yep. Huge fan Good of Nile Rodgers. My kids Good laugh at me constantly because when he comes on the TV, I go all gooey because I think he's brilliant. If you yep. look at the back story of all the people he's worked Great with and, and influence, he's brilliant. Uh, and then finally, I finish with Eagles, Hotel California. Yeah, we're all very eclectic, aren't we? So I'm going to I'm going to drag it down to my level now. <laughs> um, Don't say cheeky, cheeky girls. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The Spice Girls. Right. First, you're right, Andrew. You have to have a Beatles record. Um, right. And I'm going, please, please me. Okay. And we'll debate right. this afterwards if okay. we have time over a coffee. <laughs> but I'm all about the beginning. I'm all about the genesis of creation. And okay. to me, to record that album in one day and what that led to thereafter, um, I think that says it all about uh, about the Beatles for me. Uh, I then went into my uh, student uh, period, even though I was never a student. Uh, the Smiths' first album by mm-hmm. The Smiths. Um, uh, huge fan of, uh, of Morrissey. Not totally in line with his uh, political opinions nowadays but he's getting on a bit uh stone roses uh by mm-hmm. stone roses which actually was their second album um, they did release one before that which no one talks about anymore um carrying on the beatles theme band on the run by wings that is a good album huge one of my favorites yeah bearing in mind he he recorded all of that pretty much on his own yep. in a studio in, in nigeria it's a fantastic album and uh, and then the doors by la woman again huge fan um, of okay quirky there's not not many in, in pop. I watched their Bohemian Rhapsody recently with Freddie Mercury. Album, <laughs> but there's not many, like you mentioned, Bowie. Mm. There's not many great yeah. personalities in music anymore. Eh? The Doors were on my long list. On yeah, the long list, we've yeah. all got a long list. But yes. next time we go to the pub, that will change. I guarantee it. Right, <laughs> we're done. Listen, Andrew, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Really thank enjoyed you so much. that. Yep. Um, how can people get hold of you? Can you just give us your Twitter handle in case people want to follow you? Yes, I'm at a sentence spelled a. S-E-N-T-A-N-C-E. Okay, brilliant. Follow Andrew. Fantastic. That's great. So that's um, episode 41 there, Martin, of the experience. If you'd like to appear (coughs) yourself on a future episode of the podcast, you can contact us through our Twitter feed, which is at the LM Experience, and uh, we will be back with you soon. Brilliant. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Drew. Thank you.